Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Our text this morning is from Revelation 17, verses 9 through 18. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with them will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over the beast their royal authority. Until God's words are fulfilled, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. This is the word of God. Another challenging text indeed. If you're anything like me, uh, preaching through the book of Revelation has been a bit of a, it's like exercising new muscles. And over time, it's week after week with challenging imagery and symbols and numbers. And I'll admit, uh, there are times where I feel a bit weary. And, and as I was preparing for this text, I'm like, all right, Revelation 17. I, I began to see if anyone else had preached it and kind of what direction they took. And turns out most churches skip this chapter. And uh, since we're Eastminster Presbyterian, we split into two sermons, which, you know, seems par for the course. But here's the good news, and what I think is um, a good thing for us is that we're not afraid of difficult texts. And so it's in the long haul, I think it's good for us. I think it's challenging for us. And here's the good news. We're getting to the end of the book, and at the end of Revelation, it is really, really exciting. So get excited for that. The end is in sight. In the book of Revelation, we have highly symbolic, but a very real portrayal of the forces that stand in the way of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We've been told that standing behind these forces is Satan, where we have multiple allusions to Satan. He's been called the great red dragon in one instance. We see him in verse 20 or chapter 20. We'll see he's called the ancient serpent. But the thing about Satan in this case is he does not work alone. He is responsible for orchestrating and energizing a vast political and social and religious and moral idolatrous network of anti-Christian forces. And in the book of Revelation, this global conspiracy of anti-Christian forces is also called the beast. Okay, initially when I looked at my text, the sermon title that was the placeholder was The Return of the Beast. And so we're going to be looking at who is this beast. 
Another word used to describe these anti-Christian forces um, is called the beast. And another word that you'll see often thrown around is the word Babylon. Now, Babylon was an ancient city that was, was guilty of all manner of idolatry and oppressive ways. But here, in this case, when John uses the term Babylon, he's talking about more than just an ancient city. Babylon can be defined simply as a counterfeit city of God. A quote from one of the commentaries we've worked with on our pastoral staff is this, that Babylon will always fall because Babylon is built on faulty presuppositions and because Babylon gets eaten up by the very power that made her Babylon to begin with. You see, the term Babylon goes way back. You can go back to Genesis 11. You have the Tower of Babel. There were people who were building this tower, and there was this line that was repeated over and over again, let us build a name for ourselves. It was an attempt to build a society without God. If you fast forward to the Old Testament, you have multiple examples of this, whether it's Nineveh, okay, the city in which Jonah was trying to flee from is called a Babylon. You have Persia and Greece and Rome, all of them in the scriptures at times are referred to as a type of Babylon. And so in a sense, Babylon is a code word for humanity seeking to build a city without God. Now this is important to understanding where we're going today and next week. But simply put, to sort of summarize what this passage means. I believe the passage today describes the idea that while the beast is at war with the lamb, the lamb in the end wins. How do we know this? Verse 14, it says, the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. The war ends when Jesus Christ shows up again. And what I think is happening here is John, who's writing this to the church in the first century, is being very pastoral to those who are in Rome. He's saying, look, don't panic, don't freak out. Empires and cities will do whatever they can to resist what is happening in Christ, but they cannot overcome him. And now, for a minute, or maybe five minutes. Let me unpack some of the symbolism that we see here because I think that's important for us in understanding this text. Throughout the book of Revelation, we have the use of numerical symbolism. So when it uses the term seven heads, when you see this, this number seven, um, this isn't not necessarily numerically precise, but it's referring to the figurative idea of fullness or completion. This is a, a common uh, number, numerology we see all throughout the scriptures. Now, some have interpreted that to mean, in, in a more historical sense, that those are the literal seven mountains in Rome. And that's possible, but I think it's more consistent to consider it to be more of a figurative thing. And I would argue that the, they're not seven particular kings or seven particular empires, because truthfully, those lists are a lot longer than seven. It would be hard to pick and choose which seven but rather I think they represent the oppressive power of world government all throughout the ages. That persecute God's people when they do not submit and bow down, whether it's to Caesar, whether it's to a certain ideology, whatever it might be, that these seven represent that throughout history. So the seven heads of the beast signify the totality of blasphemy and evil and I would say it's, it's less of a quantitative number, more of a qualitative value. So we're looking at what do they represent as a whole. In John's particular day, the beast was Rome. 
right? This was, this was the, the oppressive empire at play. And it may have well been some, you know, the seven hills may be representative of Rome. That's, that's quite possible. Um, but let me sort of summarize John's symbolic imagery as best as I can and as easy of a way to understand. So you have seven, the number of uh, totality or the number of completeness. It's John's way of saying that the beast rules over the entire history of fallen, rebellious humanity. But in the midst of that, the good news is that the beast's tyrannical reign is coming to an end. The beast's seven heads or kings or mountains, right? Five of them have fallen and have come to an end, but the beast in the form of one of its seven heads is still in power. Because in verse 10, what does John say? He says, it is, and yet on the seventh head has not yet come. Does that sound familiar? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. You see, in every sense of the word, the beast is a demonic replica of the one true God. It's an imi- a cheap imitation of the true thing. And what we see in verse 10 is that the beast will rule, but only for a little while. And just when you think the beast is dead and gone, it will come back to life one more time in the form of an eighth head. But that too will be destroyed. The eighth head of the beast is is the beast's power to lead an unprecedented persecution of the church. For a very brief time, which I love this, John says the, the the eighth head will lead for one hour, right? It's not a very long time. Obviously, it's a symbolic representation. And the 10 kings and all these rulers throughout the earth will align themselves with the beast one last ditch effort to make war on the lamb, to destroy Jesus Christ and all of its people, but they will fail. Jesus will return from heaven and conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Friends, this was an encouragement to the church in the first century who was dealing with a massive beast, that of Rome. But I also believe it's an encouragement to us that there is going to be a climactic point at the end of, of on the horizon of history when the creator God breaks back into human history, vanquishes evil, injustice, poverty, disease, death, all once and for all, and ushers in a new kingdom, a new rule, a new reign in the presence of the living God all over the earth where all things are made new. That sermon's coming in a few weeks. For now, we have to deal with Babylon. So Babylon is a word that John uses to identify the beast. It represents the total culture apart from God. There are seven marks of Babylon, and I've taken this from our uh, commentary that we've been working with, and I think I have them on the screen for you. These are seven marks of Babylon, and I'm not going to go too deep into these because I think it's Pastor Stan's sermon next week, but I'll give you a brief overview. Uh, One of those marks is leaving the living God out of the equation. We see in every instance of Babylon, they went to make a name for themselves, a society outside and away from God entirely. The second mark is that of sensuality. We see practices of sexual, sexual immorality, not only that, but also of greed and excess and drunkenness and, and all kinds of varieties. You have injustice, you have slavery, people groups being oppressed. You have a worship of products in the ancient world that, that may have been a grain, it may have been a, a, a certain produce, it may have been an idol. Um, in our 
current culture that could be Apple products or, you know, technology or whatever that might be. You have violence, deception, and counterfeit, which, by the way, are descriptors of Satan himself as the deceiver. And lastly, you have idolatry. Now, when you read this list, you may think, oh, I I can see where these societies that may be called Babylon have existed. You could point to Nazi Germany and say, that certainly was a type of Babylon, and I would agree with you. You may point to what's happening in Russia right now or what's happening in Ethiopia or, or, or some country where Christians are being oppressed and you may say, oh, well, well, that's certainly a Babylon. And I would say, yes, absolutely. But you may also realize as you read this list and say, hey, perhaps a few of these, if not all of them, are represented in our nation as well. And you find yourself waking up realizing maybe perhaps we are in a type of Babylon As Christians, we have a very unique call. We are called to live in the world, but not of the world. And as a general rule, there are two, excuse me, two extremes I think we want to avoid. On one hand, we have the extreme of being separatists, okay, where we totally remove ourselves from the culture entirely. We, We sort of create a Christian bubble and we go, we send our kids to Christian schools. We only do, um, we have, sort of Christian spaces all around us and totally remove ourselves from the culture at large. I think the other extreme is we become syncretists, where we get sucked into the cultural pole and our morality and our ethics begin to be shaped by the dominant culture. We treat Jesus like a sort of buffet where we like his teachings on inclusiveness and acceptance and love, but we don't really like his teachings on sexuality or his teachings on money or on forgiveness. And so we sort of pick and choose what parts of Jesus we want in our life. And in the end, we end up creating God in our own image. Friends, these two extremes are not what we're called to be in the midst of Babylon. We are called to be in, but not of the world. So, so let me, before we name how to do that, let me just name a couple cultural shifts because we live in a very different culture than um, first century Rome or, or, or um, much of what the disciples of Jesus in the early church experienced. But I do think that we're experiencing some, some really unique cultural shifts in our nation today. And here are a few of them. One, where the Christian church is observing the shift from the public to the private. What do I mean by that? A presidential candidate was asked the question of his views on the issue of abortion. And his answer was, well, privately, I, I don't, I'm, I'm against abortion because of my Catholic faith. But publicly, I am for women, and I believe in their right to choose. Right? There's, a, in a sense, a contradiction where privately they hold to a certain view because of their beliefs, but outwardly, in the way they present themselves, they have a totally different perspective. It's as if their agenda and their goals don't quite line up with their true, actual beliefs. Another shift we're seeing in the church is that we have moved from the majority to the minority. Christian ethics were once sort of the Uh, seen as moral and virtuous. But there, in a sense, is this constant pressure, both from the left and the right, to assimilate to the herd mentality. And if you have, let's say, for example, a traditional um, ethic, Christian ethic, um, it's possible that because of that view or that that understanding, you may be labeled a bigot or you may be labeled um, hateful by the herd. 
And there is a pressure that you might feel to want to assimilate to the common belief. Another shift we're seeing is from a place of honor to a place of shame. There was a time when followers of Jesus were held in a very high regard, where Ivy League schools were considered Christian. They held places of honor. But now due to many cultural shifts, Christians have shifted from the moral majority to the moral minority, meaning no longer do we hold a majority high ground in terms of morality, but there's a a difference in the way in which Christians are viewed. Now viewed as more of a rebel on the fringe as opposed to the moral majority. And the last shift we're seeing is a widespread tolerance to a rising hostility. There's a cultural and relational pressure that we live under, a stigma we carry, and more and more people don't just think of Christians as sort of a a weird group, but rather dangerous and problematic is a phrase I hear often. And the exclusiveness of your faith is oppressive. Now look, I wanna be clear. I don't believe that Christians in our, our nation are being persecuted. Not, certainly not in the sense as they were in the first century and, and certainly not in the sense they are in other parts of the world where Christianity is seen as a threat and Christians are genuinely killed for their faith. That's not what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to communicate. But I do think that these shifts are happening in our country and for Christians and followers of Jesus who have lived through that, it can be really disorienting because it happens over time And there are certain pressures that I think often go unnamed. My question is, is have you felt these shifts? These are happening in America because we are living in an increasing post-Christian culture. And while we live in the Midwest, this tends to happen a little bit slower. But if you live in bigger cities, especially on the coast, you experience it more rapidly. And over time, this is going to continue, I believe, to get worse. There's a word used to describe this in the scriptures because Christians have been experiencing these shifts all throughout history. And that word is the word exile. I'm gonna give you a quote by a guy named Lee Beach. He does a great job describing exile. He says, the experience of knowing that one is an alien and perhaps even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. The sense of exiles experienced by anyone who feels alienated, cast adrift, or marginalized by their inability or unwillingness to conform to the tyranny of the majority opinion. Another word, or another definition by Eugene Peterson, he says this, the essential meaning of exile is that we are where we don't want to be, we are separated from home. John who's on the island of Patmos, is experiencing exile in real time. He is not home. He is not in where he wants to be. And yet he is writing to people who are also experiencing that while they are facing immense pressure in their own context. Now, there's, there's a second observation I'll make, and that's this, that there is a sense, I think, too, that we sense that the culture is against us, and our sort of gut reaction to that is to go to war against the culture, and I think that, too, is problematic for a few different reasons. I think this type of mentality can lead to sort of desperation and anger and, and a lot of division, even among Christians, 
the truth is this, and what we need to reckon with as the church, and I know Ben Davis sort of alluded to this last week, but it's that culture has already infiltrated the American church in many ways, whether it's in consumerism, whether it's in wealth and materialism and fear-mongering or, or, or whatever, upward mobility. I believe that the American dream even has in, in, totally infiltrated our culture in ways we don't even notice. Christians have been indoctrinated by Babylon, I think, without even realizing it. But the good news is this, for all of us, God's truth confronts all of it. There's a story about the great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Bonhoeffer, if you know anything about him, he was a genius. Karl Barth, who is another genius theologian, called called Bonhoeffer a genius at the age of 21. And Bonhoeffer was doing something really subversive in his culture. He created a community, it was kind of like a seminary, where he was discipling and training pastors uh, sort of underground. And it was this super intense discipleship uh, program. And if you're familiar uh, with the book's Cost of Discipleship, the book uh, Life Together, these are much described, uh, his sort of experience and what he learned in these processes. But one day there was this young historian who, who wanted to find out more about this because he had heard rumors of this sort of underground seminary. And so he came to Bonhoeffer and he said, why are you so intense? Like, why, why do you feel the need to do all of this? And Bonhoeffer said, hey, I want you to come with me. And so William Niesel's the name of the historian, got in the boat with Bonhoeffer and they got in this boat and he began to row across the water. And he took this man in complete silence, maybe for about an hour and a half, across this body of water, finally gets to this huge hill. They climb up to the top of the hill, and over the hill, they look out, and they see thousands upon thousands of German Nazi soldiers training in the way of the Third Reich. And Bonhoeffer looks, and he says, you see that? You see what they're doing out there? What we're doing in here?" has to be stronger than what they're doing out there. And they left, and the historian William Niesel understood why he was so intense. Friends, I believe that a vision for Jesus' discipleship, informing people in the truth, has to be stronger than that of the world. There are many reasons for this. There are unseen cultural forces that are forming us in ways we can't see. There's the allure of Babylon that will continue to form us from the outside in. And I believe that what we do in our discipleship has to be stronger. And I believe that begins with discipling our kids. Whether that means discipling them in our homes or whether that means discipling them in our Sunday school classes. And I'm not talking about indoctrinating them. I'm talking young children. I believe it's one of the most important places we can serve here at our church. But discipleship does not just end uh, for children. It continues as you grow older, as you move into middle school and high school and your 20s, 30s, 40s, until eventually maybe your kids leave the home and you're an empty nester. Your discipleship does not end until you are on your deathbed in the very end. God is constantly forming us to the very end. It will continue until Jesus takes us home. And what I believe has to be true is that our discipleship has to be stronger than that of the allure of Babylon. In closing, I want to just return to the text because there's some really important um, things to close with. One is this, that when God, at first to God's coming, 
Okay, that refers to his coming at the end of the age when Christ comes to judge the world and consummate his kingdom. Notice there's a description of the beasts coming. I believe that this is a demonic ripoff of the final return of Christ. We will read this, verse 14. They will wage war against the lamb. Do we not see this today in the religious and political systems of our day? You see, throughout history, as it is today, Babylon is a cheap imitation of what God's ultimate plan for humanity is. It promises something that it cannot deliver. Similar to the Garden of Eden when the serpent promises Adam and Eve to eat from this fruit and you will be like God. And when they ultimately gave in to that, what happened? It absolutely did not deliver on its promise. It leads to ruin. It's a false gospel. But if we keep reading... It says, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And this is an incredible statement because it says with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. I love that line, that prepositional phrase, with him. And I have to give a shout out to either Tom Wine or Anna, whoever picked out that song, We Are Not Alone, could not be a more perfect choral song for this message because this is the hinge verse. It says, with him. Notice, Jesus is not alone when he comes again. We are with him. By God's grace, he has chosen us, his people, to join him in this victory. The people of God stand firm. And so no matter what the beast may do, what he cannot do is threaten who we are in Jesus Christ. He can't negate it, no matter how hard it might get. No matter how hard it got for the first century church, and no matter how hard it might get for us today. If you were at all discouraged or 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 tired, or whatever it might be from this text, just remember, no matter how hard it gets, Jesus Christ will return and will conquer with us. Now, I don't know what it will look like. I don't know the mechanics of it. I mean, uh, Stan did a great job trying to explain this idea. In in Thessalonians, we see that those who are are left will be caught up to meet him in the air. Perhaps Christians throughout the ages who are on earth will join with him. Um, Regardless of how it happens, we know this. We will be with him in the end. Don't be discouraged. Do not be dismayed. Because Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords, and we will be with him. In closing, I'll ask you this question. Which gospel do you believe? Because the world is filled with false gospels. There's the gospel of Caesar, the gospel of empire, the gospel of Babylon, the gospel of more money, more stuff, more clothes, more things will somehow bring happiness. And do you believe maybe if I could just have this one thing, if I could just achieve this one career promotion, or if I could just have whatever it might be, then I would finally find joy. Or the gospel of fame, popularity, the gospel of romantic completion, that somehow if I could just get married to the right person, or if you're married and you want to be unmarried, maybe the opposite. But whatever it might be, this one thing, if I could have it, then I would be free. Or maybe it's the gospel of political idolatry, that if we could just get the right people in office, the right laws passed, and everything would be perfect, and we could have this ultimate joy. But friends, Things are going to continue to get worse. There are going to be moments when we can celebrate and there are going to be moments when we are going to weep. 
At the end of the day, you need to hear the true gospel. There's another lie I think that the world tries to tell us, and that's that our appearance, how we appear, and our performance equals our acceptance. That our appearance to others, the appearance, the way we, we, we come off to other people and the way we perform and the way we live our life, that that is what will lead to our acceptance. But the gospel has a different formula. The gospel says it's Christ's appearance, it's Christ's performance that leads to your acceptance. That your right standing before God is rooted in and anchored by Christ's obedience for you, not your obedience to him. It's what Christ has done. His appearance and performance and obedience to the will of the Father to the death on a cross. Resurrecting from the dead, defeating the power of death and Satan himself. There is nothing that can take away from that. But the good news for us is that it doesn't end there. There's a climactic point on the horizon when the creator God breaks back into human history and vanquishes evil and death and poverty and disease wipes the slate clean, ushers in a new kingdom, a new rule, a new reign, a new presence of the living God and restores all things. And we are with him when this happens. Babylon will not stand against the power of God's plan for humanity. The beast in his final gasping breath will get one last strike at the church. But as the text says, he only gets one hour. And Jesus prevails. Friends, don't be confused by the propaganda of our day. Remember, what we do in here, the discipleship and formation of Christ in our people has to be more powerful than what happens out there because the allure of Babylon is real. And the world needs to hear that they are eternally loved and accepted by God and that that is a gift And so in our response, let us not be tempted to separate ourselves and to to just sort of live in our own little Christian bubble. And let us not get syncretized by the culture and to simply believe the lies that culture is constantly propagating towards us. But rather, let's declare the radical gospel message to a culture that is desperate for good news. There's nothing more more powerful than the gospel of Jesus. So let's first believe it ourselves and let's tell the world. Let's pray. Father, we give you our our worship, and we ask for perseverance to stand firm in the midst of a world that is changing, in the midst of places in the world where uh, people are not safe to worship you, and we keep them in, in prayer, and as we hear the words of Paul, may they be in, in, or words of John, may they be an encouragement to us that we would continue to be faithful in our discipleship from the moment that um, we set feet into this building when we are discipling our kids to the way in which we live in the workplace and the way in which we conduct ourselves that people would see we are Christians by our love and that we would be able to share the gospel for many who desperately need it. Lord, I pray for encouragement for those who feel far from you, who feel distant. May they know that they are fully seen, fully known, and yet fully loved. Pray all these things for your beautiful name. Amen.